There are two readings this morning. The first is from Genesis, chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. At that time, The Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The second reading is in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Well, please do keep that passage open in front of you. Um, And let me add my welcome this morning. It's really good to have you with us here at Chalmers. It is not an exaggeration to say this passage has got me the most excited in my prep for a long while. And I'm usually pretty excited looking at the Bible. So uh, there's just amazing truths in here for us to, um, to get our heads and hearts around. Um, we, in the first service, the 9.30 service, um, we had the baptism of Edward Burton to Simon and Marilyn. Um, and this is a great passage when you're thinking about the youngest of generations, um, you may have noticed right at the end there, you have some Christians, believers um, in God, uh, who are passing on God's promises to the next generation. It's great to be thinking about that when we had a baptism. But actually, this passage covers the entire Christian life. So verse 8 of our passage, 11 verse 8, is the start of Abraham's faith journey, you might say. It's when he became a believer and, and responded to God's call. That's the start of the Christian life. Um, And then you get a whole load of stuff of the kind of middle of the Christian life, the temptation to turn back in the middle of the Christian life when it gets tough. And then those people at the end, right at the end of their lives, the very last day on earth, what are they doing there? Still trusting God's promises. So this is a passage that whether you're thinking about becoming a Christian, this would be a good passage to explain why it's worth it. What perspective leads someone to become a Christian, even if it's costly? If you are a Christian and maybe feeling the heat a bit or just the weariness, been going a while and wondering, is this really worth it? This passage gives us a perspective that can keep us going through the hard times. And if um, you're coming to life's later years or wondering what it will be like when you do, this passage gives us the perspective to keep trusting God to the very last day on earth. So let me pray that I wouldn't mess it up and that we'd all have open and attentive ears to hear God's voice here. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. Thank you for its clarity and its relevance to everyone in this building. Please help me to be faithful to it and help all of us, whatever else is on our hearts and minds this morning, please help all of us to listen to your voice. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just before we get into the details of um, Hebrews 11, I want to just say a word or two on how we should read this chapter. Um, Forrest Gump famously said, life, I won't do the accent, life was like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. And some people approach the Bible like a box of chocolates, kind of you scan through until there's a bit you fancy, and you pick that bit out and really enjoy it. It doesn't particularly matter how that connects with any of the other bits or fits in the context. It's just a kind of pick and mix, just lots of juicy gems. Pick the flavor you like. That's a hugely popular approach to the Bible, kind of pick the bits you like. 
But it's not how the Bible was written. God designed this book to be, to be listened to and, and read uh, kind of in its flow. That's why as a church, we, we try and work our way through books of the Bible. So we're not just picking the bits we like, but, but following what God is actually saying to us. He's speaking with a message, with a purpose. We've seen that in Hebrews, haven't we? The whole book is keeping these Christians going. These Christians from a Jewish background, facing real cost, struggling, to, to, tempted to turn back. And Hebrews has been keeping them going. The thing is, when you get to Hebrews 11, I mean, it does sound an awful like, like, like a box of chocolates. Because it's just like, by faith this person, by faith that person, by faith that person, by faith that person. You're like, well, it's just a, it's just a selection box. It's like Cadbury's Heroes, without the Cadbury's, but with faith instead of chocolate. It's like faith heroes, and you can just pick whatever you fancy. Just, just pick one. Uh, it doesn't matter what order you read it in. It doesn't particularly matter which one you pick. They're all just encouraging examples. Now, there's a tiny bit of truth in that. Just look at chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. 12, verse 1. Since, therefore, this is at the end of this long list of kind of characters of faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us keep running the race. Let us keep going. So each of these people is a kind of witness, a great crowd, a throng of witnesses. Question is, though, can you, can you kind of as it were, consume them like chocolates? Can you just pick them randomly, the one you fancy? Or have they been arranged to actually tell us something? They're not just a cloud. They're a cloud of witnesses. And what are they saying to us? Is there a message in how they're organized? And the revelation for me this week has been I've always read them one at a time. And I'm now realizing actually Hebrews is very carefully arranging these by-faith people to make specific points to us. Let me show you that uh, in our last week's section. So 11, 1 to 7, if you were here, um, hopefully this will be familiar. If not, um, this will catch you up. Uh, But in verse 1, we had the definition of faith. This whole chapter is about living by faith, and we got the definition. Faith is living with trust in the unseen, or hope in the unseen. Trust in things you can't see that are true now, like God's there, Hope in things that are future that you can't see. The unseen future, the unseen present. Faith is living by what you can't see. That definition. Then verse 2, we had the worth of faith. Why is it worth living by promises you can't see? So it's a pretty strange thing to do in this world. And we saw that it's the only life that God commends. That's verse 2. Then we got some examples of those two headlines. So example 1. Uh, an example of trusting God about something that's unseen, we thought about creation. No one saw it the moment where nothing went to something in the universe. We trust God. We take God's word for that. And then we saw examples of people being commended for faith. Abel, why did he please God? It was by faith. Enoch, why did he please God? It was by faith. Commended. And then Noah, verse 7, just have a look. Noah brings them both together. So by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, there's the faith, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and so he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God commended him for that, declared that righteous. Have any sense? So 1 to 7 very clearly said two things to us. Faith is trusting God in the unseen, and God loves it. In fact, it's the only life God commends all the way through the Bible. So what about our passage Today we've got verses 8 to 22. It's a lot of verses, so so buckle up. I hope you're um, taking deep breaths and concentrating. 8 to 22 
is all about Abraham's family and particularly the promises to Abraham's family. That's what 8 to 22 is all about. Um, Now, as we heard in our first reading from Genesis, there are two key promises under the umbrella of I'll be your God, you'll be my people, that relationship with God. Under that, there are two key promises. A promise of a better place to live in and the promise of a great people that Abraham would be. And in our passage, we're going to move between those two promises. So let me put the structure up there. Verses 8 to 10 are all about the promise of a better place. We'll go through it in detail in a moment. Verses 11 to 12, all about the promise of a great people. Then 13 to 16 goes back to the promises of a better place before 17 to 19 talks about a great people. See, he's moving back and forth between these two promises. And then, again, the last little bit brings it all together. We see three examples of people trusting those two promises right till the end of their life. That's the flow. Let me just prove I'm not making this up. Um, You can follow in your Bible. That's the best way to do it, but I'll put the words on the screen as well. Um, So first off, verses 8 to 10, just look at all the words about um, place that come up there. Um, So verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. 4 verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you hear the words? Place, land, city. He's being promised a better home, a better place to live. Then let's go to verses 11 to 12, because this is all about the offspring promise. This promise of a great people that Abraham would become, a great nation from his line. So verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age of childbirth. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. Do you hear the language? Conceive, born descendants. Uh, It's the promise of a great people. But then you flip back to the place promise. Verse 14, I'll I'll pick it up from there. So all of 13 to 16 is about this, but verse 14, people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country. And then at the bottom, God has prepared for them a city. Hear the language? Home, land, country, city. It's a place promise. And then we're back to the offspring um, in verses uh, 17 to 19. Um, Again, only son, uh, offspring, through offspring. Um, So do you see, we're moving back and forth between those two promises. Um, If you think, why are we even looking at this? Like, What's the relevance of this? Just bear with me. Um, It's really exciting once you get there. Um, So what we're going to do, and it's important to concentrate for this moment, in this talk, we're going to first think about the place promise, then think about the people promise. Does that make sense? We'll do 8 to 10 and 13 to 16 first, the left-hand side, and then we'll do the people promise. Okay, I hope you're with me. Here's my first point. Um, Faith lives anticipating a better God-built home. Faith lives anticipating a better God-built home, even though that requires not belonging in this world. This is the significance of all these words about land and place. Verses 8 to 10, Abraham was looking forward to a better home. He lived with his eyes on a greater place to live for. Let me show you that in the passage. So verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed 
When he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. So when God Abraham called Abraham to go, this is the start of his life as a believer, he did go. God said, I have a better land for you, Abraham. And he took God at his word. He trusted God for the unseen. He hadn't visited it yet. And notice, Abraham didn't get his hands on the land in his lifetime. So in Genesis 15, he's told it's going to be 400 years before your family settle here permanently in Canaan. So he, was, he got a kind of walking tour, uh, like a show home. He was a tourist, a sojourner, just passing through. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. I don't know if you like camping. It's nice for a little bit, but you wouldn't want to live like that, would you? Abraham never got to settle down. He never actually got his hands on the land he was promised. He lived as a, a sojourner, as in a foreign land. So what kept him going then? Why was it worth it? Well, verse 10. Look at where his eyes are pointing. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is to say, Abraham was willing to spend his life in a tent because he knew that God had a better home, a better inheritance planned for him and his family. He was looking forward to a God-built city. I hope that's clear. To to sum all that up, I'm going to just put a picture up, or three pictures actually, to to sum this up. So first off, that triangle is supposed to be a tent. (laughs) Sorry, it doesn't look much like one. But he lived like he didn't belong in the land. He was kind of passing through. How did he do that? By looking forward. What was he looking forward to? God's city, this greater home, this greater place, this greater inheritance um, that, that God was building for him. Okay, hope that's clear. Now let's see the same thing in verses 13 to 16. You know, striking, all the same ideas repeated. So look with me, verse 13. These all, as in Abraham's family, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So there's the the kind of not belonging in this life. How did they keep going? Verse 14. People who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. Or verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country. Do you see? There's the kind of looking forward. I'll put some pictures up. There's the looking forward. What was in their minds? What was in their kind of the, the, the eyes of their hearts? This greater city that God was building for them, this better home. And, um, of course, that language of city comes up again, doesn't it? Verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see the point? I mean, when he says it twice, I think we do have to kind of take it seriously. God's people, right from the start, these people of faith, lived looking forward to a better home that God was building. Right from the start. Adam's been saying all morning, the Christian life is one of hope. Absolutely it is. What is the hope in? A better home, a better place to belong than this world offers. And that means right from the start, God's people have learned to live with a loose grip in this world, a kind of tent mindset. Actually, we don't fully belong here. Why might that be encouraging to hear? if you're a Christian going through a hard time. 
Well, let's just flick back to chapter 10 and remind ourselves what situation this church that this book's written to was going through. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Um, he, he, he gets this church to, to cast their minds back to the, the early days of their Christian life. Verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What was hard? Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That is kind of insults, mockery. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. They found it tough when the news headlines were taking the mick out of Bible-believing Christians. They found it tough around the office or the school or uh, the university or, or the, the school gate when, when kind of, uh, people laughed at the idea of trusting in God's promises. And then look at verse 34. You had compassion of 10. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These people had lost property. We don't know exactly what it was. Had the state fined them, maybe, for proclaiming Jesus in the public square? Or more likely, I think, had families disinherited some of these Christians? They come from a Jewish background, and they've come to trust in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But if the family had rejected him, it might well be that inheritance rights or property rights are removed. Either way, what keeps you going when you feel how much you don't belong in this world is having your eyes on a better possession. Eyes forward to the city that God is building for us. That's our first point. Faith lives anticipating a better God-built home. Just before we move on, we're going to spend most of our time, by the way, on this first point, because I think it's profoundly helpful and radically challenging for us. Um, When in the Christian life do you need your eyes on this future home that God's providing? Well, the first day, verse 8, all the days in the middle, which will be 13 to 16, and the last days, right at the end of the passage. Do you remember how Jesus invited people to follow him? It's exactly this similar to this call that Abraham, to kind of come out from the life you were in, and I've got a better promise for you. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, that is in this world, will lose it eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, Jesus offers that choice, doesn't he? At the start of the Christian life, it's going to take turning from the life you were in to the life I'm giving you and the promises I'm holding out. This could not be more relevant around the globe. There are still uh, numerous backgrounds that respond with real, can respond with real hostility when people become Christians. I've heard this phenomenon from uh, Christians from a Muslim family background, from a Jewish family background, from an LGBTQ plus community background, from secular atheist family backgrounds, from Hindu backgrounds. Not always, but sometimes. What kept each of those people willing to trust in Jesus when it might cost them? Cost them friendships or cost them family relationships or cost them property? They had faith 
that God would provide a better home to come. That's the first section, uh, verses 8 to 10. Let's just look in a bit more detail there, 13 to 16. Because this doesn't cover the start of the Christian life. It covers basically all the way through, the kind of middle of it. Um, Just notice, verse 13, all these people died in faith, not having received the things promised. They uh, acknowledged these things, but acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Or verse 15, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That language of choosing not to turn back, even when life is pretty tough, even when your hands are not actually getting on God's promises, as it were. Well, it's so striking, because it's exactly what the Hebrews were tempted to do, and what weary Christians today can be tempted to do. Maybe life isn't working out quite as you'd hoped. Maybe you thought becoming a Christian would would make life easier, and it's made it harder. Maybe it feels like God isn't delivering on things you would love to have in life. Well, what kept these Christians going was trusting that God would provide a better country, a heavenly one. In fact, that really is exactly the choice that the the Hebrew church were facing. Do you remember back in chapters 3 and 4, he compared them with the Israelites in the wilderness, they were on the way, so they kind of come out of this world. They come out of the slavery they were, they were in in Egypt, and they were headed towards God's promised rest. Uh, there they all are, looking happy-ish. Um, but they started to think, Do you know what? It's so far away, and I'm not sure God will get us there, and it's maybe not worth the risk. And so they started to think, well, why don't we go back to Egypt? At least it provided some stuff there. And they did a U-turn. They didn't make it to God's rest, because they went back to the land they came from. Do you see? And actually, in the kind of flow of Hebrews, that's a picture of the kind of flow of Hebrews, that was a massive kind of exclamation mark warning us, do not be like them. Do not harden your heart to God's voice. Do not um, turn backwards through unbelief that God will provide this promised rest. That was the, the kind of negative example, don't be like them. And now in chapter 11, we've got the positive example, do be like all these people of faith, these people who live for the future, who live for a new creation, God's promised um, eternal rest. Now, I just said this is talking about living for the new creation. Uh, You might think, oh, hang on, hang on. Wasn't Abraham promised the land? Let's just go back. Wasn't he promised the physical land of Canaan? Well, yes, initially the promise was given in those terms. But actually, we've seen in Hebrews again and again that God, God teaches his people through an earthly picture of the heavenly reality. So he gave Israel an earthly human priest as a picture of Jesus, our priest in heaven. He gave Israel animal sacrifices as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice at the cross. And he gave Israel the land of Canaan as a picture of the eternal home, the new creation. As verse 16 puts it, this heavenly country Uh, this city that God is preparing for them. Do you see the point? Right from the start, God's people have lived with eyes on the new creation, with the bigger, better land that God is promising, a land we now know that has no sickness, sadness, tears, death, suffering. God's people live with faith in that promise, live with their eyes on that promise. And that 
When life gets tough, when there's huge disappointment as a Christian, struggle, opposition, persecution, that is what keeps Christians going. So let me ask you, if that's what the life of faith looks like, how much is it what our lives look like? How much is that looking forward perspective characteristic of what we desire, what we think about, what we look to? I don't know what your answer is to that. I was asking around various kind of Bible study groups I've been in in the last week or two. Most of us find it pretty hard to keep our eyes on that future. I think partly because of the world we live in. We live in a world that's hugely now-focused, kind of grab what you can before you die, because we don't know what happens after that. We live in a world that's stuff-focused. I mean, advert after advert through every medium, saying you really could grab this and then your life would be better. Well, this experience. You see, in a world that doesn't know what's going to happen after death, FOMO is king, fear of missing out. But God's people have always lived in a radically counterculture way. Because they've had their eyes on God's promises, this future land. More sure about that than what our TVs tell us, or even our own experiences. As one example, Christians should have a radically different perspective on aging. So, for example, this week, um, some of you are aware I got older. Actually, I think I get older every week, but... This week, we kind of acknowledged it with a big birthday with a zero and all that kind of stuff. And that can be a significant milestone. For some of us, birthdays, though, will be a kind of painful milestone, a sobering milestone. Um, I even found it, I was helping the kids on the floor with something, and like my knees creaked when I got back up. And I was like, oh, no, it's begun. Um, actually, as lots of our older saints here regularly remind me, I'm actually still quite young. But let me be serious for a moment. For those of us who do find birthdays a a painful reminder, or perhaps even a a scary reminder, of ageing, of growing weakness, of increasing infirmity, of limited energy, of wondering if the best of our lives might now be behind us. If that's you, I think this passage has a a huge encouragement for you. And actually, it came to me through a birthday card this week. Um, I got a message from an older friend uh, down south who he's been a kind of mentor to me in ministry. I think he's got about 20 years head start on me in the Christian life, but it might be more. It's a bit rude to ask, so I haven't checked. He's, he's an, he would describe himself as an old man. He did in this card. And he said, do you know what he wrote? He, he said in this card, as an old man, let me say, congratulations on being one day closer to the new creation as you, cha- as you turn this big milestone birthday he then said do not believe the lie that life gets worse as you go on he said it will soon get infinitely better and that's a man i've seen just absorbed with the new creation in his heart and mind he doesn't have the strength he used to but he still lives with his eyes on that on that promise it keeps him Uh, able to battle for contentment and joy when life is hard, keeps him serving when energy is less. See, faith lives looking forward to this better God-built home, anticipating it, 
even if it requires not belonging in this world. Right from the start of our life as Christians, even when it's hard, all the way through, right to the final day, we're to keep our eyes on that future new creation. Okay, that's plenty of time on point one. Don't worry, the next two aren't nearly as big. Um, uh, I wanted that one to, to kind of have some time because I think it's a radical revolution in the way we, we should think compared to the culture around us. Um, just as we reflect on that, that question of kind of how much are our personal eyes focused on the new creation, how much does that shape our living? Um, I wonder if one of the reasons we struggle to, to really trust that and look to it and think about it, I wonder if one of the reasons we struggle is because it feels a bit impossible. As in, it's beyond death. A world with no death, like how's that actually really going to be pulled off? And me being raised to this eternal world, this God-built city, how's that really going to happen? I think we can sometimes wobble a bit, not really think about it, because something in us is thinking, well, I'm not sure that's actually possible. (laughs) Isn't it? When we die, we rot. This is where our second point comes in. Um, This second point, this promise of a people. Faith lives thinking that God will provide a huge people, even if that requires overcoming death. So this second promise that we're talking about is the people promise, um, trusting a promise of a people. Um, let me just say a, just a momentary word. Um, there's a way to understand this promise of a miraculous birth in a way that's crass and hurtful and pastorally does a lot of damage. Sometimes Christians turn to the fact that Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children and say, well, if you have enough faith, look, God will provide you children. Actually, someone well-meaning, but someone basically said that to my wife and I when we were struggling with childlessness. Deeply painful, because God has not promised every family, every, every marriage, children. I thought it was helpful to point that out on this Mothering Sunday, which I know can be a hard day for some. But actually, this promise is so relevant to us. Not as a kind of copy and paste, oh, I just need to have faith and then children will come. Not at all. Now, this is relevant because in giving Abraham and Sarah children, God proved that death cannot stop him delivering his promise. Let's just see that in the text. So just have a look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the first one, trusting a promise of the people. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful to his promise. Therefore, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven. The point is, Abraham and Sarah were way past the point of childbirth. Um, Sarah actually had already been uh, barren, wasn't able to have children, and then they were very elderly. That description in verse 12, Abraham was as good as dead physically. So medically, biologically, you look at that couple and all you saw was death effectively there was never going to be the the birth of a child in this in this family it was just wasn't possible which seemed to suggest that god's promises therefore that they'd have a massive family and they'd have a child isaac and through him would um this this huge nation come it seemed impossible seemed going against all the biological facts they could see and yet step two look what sarah did end of verse 11 She considered God faithful who had promised. That is, she weighed up the medical and biological evidence of her eyes 
against the character of God and his promises and said, you know what? He's not going to break his word. And miraculously, they received, received Isaac and then through him, this massive family that had been promised. Um, And it's the same in verses 17 to 19. Just flick your eyes down there. This time, it's not about Isaac's birth. It's about um, the moment when um, uh, Abraham, it seems, will need to sacrifice Isaac, which seems to throw into doubt all the promises because through Isaac is this great family supposed to come. As Abraham walked up that lonely mountain, trusting God's command but facing this unthinkable horror, just look in verse 19 what was going through his mind. All he could see was death, the death of his beloved only son. But then verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See the same pattern? You see death with your eyes. You consider whether God is able to do something about that. And then he received once more. See the point? We've been told it twice, again, to get it, this triplet, that when we look at death as a kind of barrier to God's promises coming, where it's medically and biologically impossible for God to deliver what he said, this great people gathered in this great place, well, Abraham and Sarah thought about God. They considered God. We've been encouraged all all book to consider Jesus. Who are we dealing with here? He is faithful. He won't break his promise. He is able as the creator. He can bring life out of death. He's able to deliver. And he did. The birth came. The people grew. But of course, for us as Christians, we don't just have the family of Abraham and Isaac to look back to to see that um, God can deal with death. We have Easter about to happen. Even more categorically, God has proved that death will not stop his promises coming. I often think it must have been really hard to be a Bible believer the night after the cross. All these amazing promises that God would provide, a a new creation and this massive people gathered in the new creation. And it would all happen through his promised king, the Messiah, And then the night before, you see the Messiah killed on the cross, dead and buried. Tiny little bunch of disciples thinking, is that it then? And then God proves that death cannot stop his promises. And if it happened with Jesus and with Isaac, it can happen with us. It will happen with us. If you're someone who thinks, well... It's hard for me to trust the new creation is really there because it's the other side of death, and that's hard to imagine. Or it's hard to imagine a world with no death because, I mean, we just don't see that. Well, actually, we have seen that in Christ, in Isaac. God has proven he will deliver his promises. And here's the thing. If we believe those two promises every day of our lives, we will keep going until the last day of our lives. And that's what verses 20 to 22 is about. This is the the conclusion. Um, Three examples of older saints. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. He's passing on the promises to the next generation. And in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, notice the comment, at the end of his life, 
made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, gave directions concerning his bones. These people are dying. They're at the end of life. We're talking about what are they saying on their deathbeds. Jacob, on his deathbed, top priority of all the things he could be thinking about, top priority is passing on these promises to the next generation because he still believes that new creation city is coming. He believes nothing matters more than that. We were saying at the baptism there, but it's so easy to, when parenting, it's so easy to kind of want this world's security for your children as if that's the highest priority, to not want to do anything that might risk them Sometimes feeling the odd one out, or um, sorry, um, or wanting them just to secure the, the safest, richest, most comfortable life. But Christians trust the new creation is what matters, and so will they be raised up on the last day with Christ? Is the thing that matters, even if it's costly now. What about Joseph? Well, he wants his bones to be relocated. I mean, he's the prime minister of Egypt at this point. I'm sure his deathbed is pretty plush, and the Egyptians are pretty good at kind of funeral rites, but he still wants to go to Canaan. Why? Because he's trusting that God has a promised place. And he's trusting resurrection. His bones will be raised. Our time is up. I said at the first service, that sometimes I think later in life it's easy to feel like nobody really talks to you anymore. Kind of the culture is interested in the younger generation. Sometimes you can even feel that at church. Church is interested in the kind of younger generations. This passage is interested in you. Keeping going to the very last day. What a blessing it is when we do know Christian believers who are serving, are, are serving their hearts out. Maybe with less energy, less capacity, but serving their hearts out to the last day because they believe that city is coming. That's where they belong. I haven't today had time to to flesh out what sort of choices we might make in life if we have this perspective. That's what's going to actually happen next in Hebrews 11. You can read on if you want to um, this afternoon into Moses. The kind of choices you make if you have this perspective on life. And we'll come back to that after Easter. We're taking a pause from Hebrews now. But I would love us, as we reflect on this passage, as we chat together over coffee, as we pray and and think later on, I'd love us to be praying that God would lift our eyes off this world, the here and now, onto his new creation. And if we think to ourselves, but how can it happen given death is a reality we see all around us? Let's remember the birth of Isaac and the resurrection of Jesus, and the character of God to deliver. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this passage. Thank you so much for for your word that right from the start was teaching what it looks like to live by faith trusting you for things we can't yet see. Pray very much for each person here at each stage of life and for us as a church family and church community. 
We pray you would help us to live by faith. Help us to live looking forward with our eyes on your promised new creation. Help us to live considering your character, that you will deliver your promises. You're you're plenty able to. And we do pray that would free us in this world, that where there are difficult times or struggles, you would help us to handle them with trust in you and even joy as we look ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.